Thanks everyone for coming tonight. This is the Dharma Buffet, a recurring Thursday evening uh, gathering to study and practice various different schools and systems of Buddhism. My name is Mojo, and tonight, the second Thursday of the month, is the Tibetan Buddhism class. And the school of Buddhism that I have been trained in is called the Geluk School of Tibetan Buddhism. It's the most modern of, uh, of all major schools of Buddhism. It was developed in the uh, late 1300s, early 1400s. The main progenitor was Jai Tsongkhapa, who's the author of the text that we are covering tonight. Um, this is the lineage of the Dalai Lamas. Jai Tsongkhapa was the uh, teacher of the first Dalai Lama. Of course, they weren't identified, they weren't called the Dalai Lama until the third Dalai Lama, so they sort of retroactively became Dalai Lamas, but the, um, the first, that, that tradition began with, um, with Jai Tsongkhapa. So we can be proud of our illustrious roots here that we're coming from uh, sources um, from bona fide sources, a lineage that has produced results generation after generation. And so we're studying a genre of texts called the Lam Rim. It's a Tibet, those are Tibetan words. And Lam Rim means steps on the path. And so the idea is that we have a sort of spiritual conveyor belt assembly line where we start at the beginning as an average person suffering schmuck trapped in unlimited rebirths and buffeted by habit and um, instinctual, uh, habitual reactivity, and then gradually learn to control and um, refine the way that our mind works so that we can eventually go through the entire process of the bodhisattva paths and come out on the other side of uh, an enlightened being, a being who is awake to the true nature of reality, who has uh, unlimited compassion, unlimited wisdom, and who has the capacity to effortlessly help beings in all of the multi throughout the multiverse. So uh, traditionally, before we start a Buddhist teaching, um, we go for refuge in the three jewels and the these, this is a major cornerstone of Buddhist practice. The three jewels are the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And uh, in all of the various different cultural manifestations of Buddhism, uh, there are lots of different poems and um, musical pieces and sort of uh, you know, liturgical recitations that we do to go for refuge. There's one here on the wall um, to my right. And uh, as an example of one of these kind of uh, these formal recitation type ways of going for refuge, for me, uh, for, for Buddhism to be useful, it has to be practical. So I prefer to, when I do this practice of going for refuge, I prefer to really contemplate what uh, the three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha mean to me. So as we are about to start this class, let's uh, take a moment to um, contemplate these three jewels, why they're jewels, and what it means to go for refuge in them. The Buddha is the idea that it's possible to transform our consciousness from habitual reactivity to perfect omniscience and compassion. That 
based on the example of Siddhartha Gautama, the, the historical Buddha, and many of uh, the subsequent people who have also put these things into practice, like Naropa, Padmasambhava, um, Jetsongkhapa, etc. Uh, we have many examples of people who have, through meditation and developing the six perfections, have become Buddhas. And that gives, what we're going for refuge in is that the idea that we're not stuck in basically being confused and reactive to a world that is beyond our understanding and too big for us to control, and that there's an alternative to that, that we can uh, cultivate. Going for refuge in the Dharma is that not only does the possibility exist, but actually there is a path, there are instructions. The, the Lam Rim is one form of uh, a curriculum for conveying the Dharma, but the idea is that the beings who have done this have left breadcrumbs for us to follow. And we can, uh, we have, um, there's something we can do about it, that we can put our hands on the Dharma, we can put these things into practice, and we can see their results in our life. And the Sangha is a community of persons who are also working on this kind of thing. So we, this group, this is a Sangha of people who have come together because these kinds of things are important to us, or at least uh, hopeful. And so we come together to set aside a little bit of time to cultivate in this way. Um, sangha also means um, other, that the Sangha also means that the enlightened beings are trying to help us, that wherever they are in their Buddha pure realm, that they can still see that we need a, a hand and that they are, that that Sangha is guiding us and they're helping us along the way. And so going for refuge means that these are things that can protect us. Whereas uh, money comes and goes, health comes and goes, relationships come and go, um, the refuge in the three jewels is something stable that we can that we can rely on. Um, of course, the ability to rely on the three jewels comes from study, contemplation, meditation, putting these things into practice. Buddhism doesn't work if you believe in it. It only works if you test it and validate it and see if it works for yourself. And the Buddha said that, and all of my teachers have said that. So um, just hearing the Dharma and letting it go in your mind is not... Uh, it's not really Dharma practice. That's one aspect of Dharma practice, but really it comes from applying these things in your life. Um, so we go for refuge, and then uh, we also set our intention. And um, the reason is because of uh, karma that our intentions, we'll get into karma a little bit in this class, uh, that our intentions, the way that we use our mind has repercussions in the world. And at the minimum, the things that we put out there come back at us. What goes around comes around. It's a very simple kind of law of karma, you know? And so understanding this, we set a positive motivation so that we're not just goofing off or wasting our time. Or worse, pl planting negative seeds, right? Because self-cherishing and the, uh, the persistent ego habit, the persistent self-identification habit drives us to do things to protect ourselves that then cause us to consciously or unconsciously create all kinds of negativity in the world. And so it's very easy for that uh, selfishness and ego clinging to be brought into the spiritual life. And of course, Chogyang Trungpa Rinpoche wrote a book on this called 
cutting through spiritual materialism. The whole book is about how the ego can co-opt the spiritual practice and, uh, and turn it into just another egoic pursuit. And so when we're setting our motivation, we, we're setting our motivation that's not that, that it's not an egoic pursuit. And specifically, we're setting the intention that um, in order for us to grow spiritually, we have to be helping others. And the more that we want to grow spiritually, the, the, to the, the greater degree that we want to grow spiritually, the greater degree we have to be helping others. And this is the, the bodhisattva ideal or, the bodhi, or bodhicitta, the wish to be enlightened with the recognition that it's not possible for one being to become enlightened unless all beings are enlightened together. And so we're setting the motivation of saying, I'm not just doing this to get myself out of samsara, but I'm doing this to lift everybody I know. That really, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a state of total happiness if I'm in my ivory tower looking out among all the suffering unwashed masses and saying, well, they can, they can eat cake, you know? Um, we, that wouldn't be a state of real happiness. That would be... Uh, that would be a um, uh, self, self-absorbed state, you know? So that's not what Buddhas are. Buddhas are, are uh, willing, are infinitely willing to help others. And so we're setting our motivation that that's what we're trying to do too. Uh, the short version is that we're not setting the Dharma for fame or profit or one of these obvious gross motivations, these gross self-cherishing motivations, but also not just that we're not doing that, but we're, we're really setting the high bar that it's, that we're doing this to help everybody in our lives, help everybody in the world, help everybody in the universe. So uh, this is how we go for refuge and set our motivation. The, uh, I already mentioned the Lamrim, the steps on the path. And the uh, way that we are approaching the steps on the path, the Lamrim, is with the three principal paths. That's the name of the root text that we're studying, which was written by Jetson Kappa, 1357 to 1419, for his dates. This is the shortest complete Lamrim that I know of. It's 14 verses. Mine is two pages, yours is double-sided. 14 short verses. This is the Cliff Notes version, the, um, the, compressed, the compressed version of the entire long rim. So every word, every phrase in this poem is totally packed with meaning and, and potency. And we are going to deconstruct just a few verses here because we're in this class we're going to talk about one of the three principal paths. We're going to talk about the foundational path which is called renunciation. Uh, the three principal paths, by the way, are renunciation, bodhicitta, which I just mentioned uh, in setting our attention, intention, and wisdom. Renunciation, bodhicitta, and wisdom. Uh, renunciation is how we get our head in the game. Bodhicitta is how we get ourselves really fired up and enthusiastic and working diligently to see results. And wisdom is understanding how the whole thing is working. So compassion without wisdom is, doesn't have, isn't potent. And likewise, wisdom without being put into action is also impotent. So these are the two wings of Buddhism, wisdom and compassion, or wisdom and method. But these are all based on renunciation, which is the recognition that things aren't going to work out 
in samsara. So uh, samsara uh, is a Sanskrit word, and it refers to the cycle of the cycle of life. Um, Buddhist metaphysics uh, presupposes or takes as a posit that there are that time has no beginning and no end, and that birth and death are not um, the beginning and end of life, but they are rather simply transitions between the bardos, uh, which is the state in between. They call one bard one of the bardos is the state between death. Uh, between when death and then the subsequent rebirth takes place. But then likewise, we're in a bardo now between birth and death, and we have a limited amount of time to get stuff done. And then we're going to forget everything, when, and the reset button's going to be hit, and we're going to be start booted, rebooted in a, in a new life. So the reason this is happening is because we are instinctively reacting, we are impulsively reacting, to all of the phenomena and experiences that we have, and that's what causes us to recreate the causes for uh, habitual life. So habitual reactivity is what creates the habit for future habitual reactivity. This is a basic kind of way of understanding karma. And then it also means that we're going to be stuck in samsara. The cycle is going to continue indefinitely, infinitely until we figure out how to use wisdom and compassion, wisdom and method to get a, a toehold in the process and change our trajectory, change the direction that we're going, change the flow of the stream. Renunciation, I wish there was a better word for this. We've got to find one because it's, it's so gloomy, you know, and it sounds so, it sounds so like, heavy-handed, like we're gonna come over to your house and you're gonna have, and we're gonna like watch you throw all your good stuff in the garbage and then you're gonna like live alone in a tiny room with nothing but like your one liturgical text and we're gonna like watch you do your sadhana every day. Um, you know what I mean? It's got this like authoritarian kind of feel, like finger wagging, like if you don't renounce this, you're never gonna, nothing good's ever gonna happen. Santa Claus is gonna fill your stocking with coal. And, uh, and actually, renunciation is a much more positive and hopeful concept than it sounds. Because what we're renouncing is suffering. What we're renouncing is that shit happens and what are you going to do about it, you know? We're renouncing that idea. We're renouncing the idea that we're stuck. We're renouncing the idea that um, bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. You know, we're trying to, uh, we're, we're making the decision to live in a different kind of world, a different kind of universe. And uh, deeper than that really is the recognition that things are not gonna work out here as long as I keep doing things the way that I've been doing them. Um, the money's not gonna last, you know, the health isn't gonna last, the relationships aren't gonna last. At the end, in the end of your life, all of those things are gonna be ripped away from you. And, uh, and there, there's nothing that you can count on. And so we do all of this effort, you know, we spend all of this time on our jobs and we spend all this time taking care of our bodies and all of this time nurturing our relationships and getting psychotherapy for our egos and all of this kind of thing. And, uh, and really that's all going to be gone at the end of our life. And so we get in touch with that idea and, uh, and start using that as a motivation to, to uh, take our spiritual life seriously. So the purpose of renunciation is to get motivation, to get your stoke up, to put, to put your spiritual life as a higher priority, 
in your day-to-day -day tasks. So bodhicitta, which means infinite compassion for other beings, is based on uh, renunciation. So renunciation is a really deep recognition that I'm, is a deep recognition of how I'm trapped in suffering, I'm trapped in the cycle of samsara, I'm trapped in habitual reactivity and impulsive reacting to experiences. And then just getting really in touch with that. And the point is to develop compassion for this state of being. Not so much compassion for like, oh, poor me, I'm stuck in suffering. But really getting in touch with like, what, it, what does suffering look like? Is it really, is, these are the kinds of questions we ask ourselves in the, the first stage, the first of the three, three principal paths. Is suffering really happening? Is it happening to me? Is it happening to other people I see? Uh, why is suffering happening? It, what are the alternatives? What are the real alternatives? What have, I, what have I tried that hasn't worked? What have I tried that has worked? And just start paying attention to these kinds of things, right? And so the point is to, get, is to develop that deep compassion for being stuck in samsara. And then we use that as the platform upon which we build the recognition that other people are in the same state and that we develop this compassion for ourselves, and that gives us the ability to have compassion for other people. So, um, uh, there's a commentary. The, I didn't mention this. The, um, the root text is by Jetsongkhapa. The commentary is by a contemporary Buddhist um, by the name of Pabonka Rinpoche, who lived from 1878 to 1941. And uh, he's kind of the big, he was sort of like the big rock star of Buddhism in Tibet before the Chinese invaded and, and Tibet basically got destroyed. Um, he died before the invasion happened, but he was a, a very well-known orator. He was a populist, so uh, whereas Tibet was a monastic system and many, and the people who were practicing were in a, uh, a monastic institution or a religious university institution. Um, Pabonko Rinpoche taught to the public. And so he was a little bit controversial, but also he really believed that Buddhism wasn't something that you have to be a monastic in order to apply in your life. That is something that lay people can apply in their lives too. So thanks, Pabonko Rinpoche, because um, we don't have a monastic system in this culture. I don't know if you noticed, but we don't really have the possibility of, uh, of becoming a full-time spiritual practitioner, dropping out of society and getting a free lunch. Um, he had a great quote about it. To develop the wish to achieve enlightenment for all living beings, you must first develop a, a kind of compassion where you can no longer bear to see these beings tormented by the sufferings of life. To develop this, you must develop renunciation over your own situation. There is no way otherwise you could gain compassion, for it contemplates the situations others must face. So, no point in trying to develop bodhicitta without developing renunciation. Uh, handy pro tip for you there. <clears throat> so, there are a couple of uh, major meditations uh, at this stage at, of bodhicitta, of, uh, I'm sorry, renunciation. Um, the, this section... The first principal path is also formally called 
the steps on the path meant to stop desire for the things of this life. And in the poem, he specifically says, uh, on the, this is the third verse, and he says, listen with a pure mind, fortunate ones who have no craving for the pleasures of life. And then he goes on down in one, two, three, four, five. He says, think, uh, wait, he says, leisure and fortune are hard to find. Life's not long. Think it constantly. Stop desire for this life. And then further down, he says, when you've meditated thus and feel not even a moment's wish for the good things of cyclic life. So I'm quoting these, I'm pulling out these quotes because he repeatedly says, for those who have the good fortune to not be attracted to the good things of this life. And so first of all, that's that renunciation like, oh no, I'm gonna to have to give up something good, right? The good things of this life, right? Aren't the good things of this life good? Well, about that, Pabonka Rinpoche says, um, Pabonka Rinpoche says, what we mean by desire for this life is this desire for happiness and fame in this life, where you say to yourself, if only I could get more of the good things than anyone in the world, the best food, the finest clothes, the biggest name, and all the rest. Anyone hopes, anyone who hopes to do some spiritual practice must stop his desire for this life. So when they're talking about the good things of this life and craving for the pleasures of life, what they're talking about is the attitude of, if only I had a little more money, if only I had a little bit nicer house, if only I had... Um, a better stove in my kitchen, if only I had a little bit better car, if only I had a better relationship, you know, if only I had a better job, if only so-and-so treated me more nicely, you know, this like, this idea that like, if I got that thing, then I'd be happy, you know, if I got a new pair of shoes, you know, and it's like, it's silly when I say it like that, but we all have this thing where it's like, oh, my thing is okay, but you know, I mean, I got a cutting edge iPad, but then they just came out with a new iPad and it's got stereo speakers and twice as much storage. And so now my iPad isn't good enough anymore. You know, it's still, we're still talking about the 1%, you know what I mean? And we're like, where in the 1% am I? That attitude that there's like, if only, if only, there's always one more thing, you know? You get the thing and maybe it makes you happier or maybe immediately, it's like, oh, well, that wasn't actually the thing. After all, if only it was the other thing, you know, the next thing. So that's what they're talking about when they're referring to the good things of cyclic life, you know? We're not, it's not that we are giving up having um, pleasurable experiences. It's that we're giving up the idea that the one more thing is going to be it, you know? If only that, then I'd be okay with it. And so this is why they say that we are to acknowledge our leisure and fortune. The main meditations in this stage are leisure and fortune, impermanence and death, and the laws of karma, um, law, uh, actions and their consequences, and how they perpetuate karma. Uh, leisure and fortune refers to, um, leisure refer refers to all the problems we don't have. Like, I mean, there's, there's lists, you know, there's tons of lists. This Galukpa school is like list Buddhism. It's like, it's all, I mean, look at this. This is like pages upon pages of bulleted lists, you know what I mean? 
And uh, so we're really into lists in the Galupa school. Um, but what we're talking about, the problems we don't have, we don't live in a war zone. We don't uh, have lack of food. We don't live in a place where, it's, where there's famine or major drought, you know? We don't have to work 16 hours a day in rice paddies in order to eke out a subsistence living, like uh, work animals, you know what I mean? We're not slaves. We live in a society where, um, they're, where we're relatively free of religious persecution. All, you know, these problems that we don't have, um, most if not all of us don't um, have to struggle for uh, shelter or for protection. We don't have to fight wild animals to survive. I mean, when they're talking about leisure and fortune, we're talking about medieval Tibet, you know what I mean? They like, they considered themselves to have leisure and fortune. There's no freaking comparison to what we have here, you know? And they were like, look how great we have it here in like this frozen wasteland where all we have to eat is yaks. And, uh, and where like the biggest distraction is like a cart goes by the path and you're like, oh, how am I supposed to meditate when the horse cart goes by every day at 6 a.m.? Let alone the kinds of uh, obstacles that we do run into. So leisure is all of the problems that we don't have. Fortune is the things that we do have. Um, sh you know, shelter, enough to eat. Uh, not to mention, not only enough to eat, but actually food that's pleasant to eat, clean water, uh, a society that, as I mentioned, you know, both of, both of, many of these have sort of a negative aspect and a positive aspect. We're not suffering religious persecution. And not only that, but we live in a society where we can like talk about Buddhism in, in public and we don't have to worry about invading hordes, burning our village to the ground. So um, in short, the leisure and fortune meditation is when you wake up in the morning, the first thing that should go through your head is how good you have it. You know, the fact that you're waking up in a relatively peaceful environment with shelter and protection and food and water and family and friends is extremely valuable. And then the next phase is impermanence and death. So here we have like, think like make, just make a grocery list of all the things that are going well for you. And even if you're having a bad day, like don't live in a war zone, not experiencing a famine or a drought, you know what I mean? Like there's some basics that like we're not dodging bullets is pretty great. Not everybody in the world has that. And it's for a limited time only. We are on, uh, we this body is going to fail. It's not, it's not if, it's not like, well, you know, someday this well down the line, I don't really have to think about it right now, it is going to fail. And there's no such thing as an average lifespan. There's no, the, there's no way to know when. It could happen at any time. And as we mentioned already, the money and the relationships and the property and the, um, uh, the educational accolades and the professional accolades aren't gonna help at all on the deathbed. No amount of medicine can prolong your life when it's time to go, you know? The, the three headings under uh, leisure and fortune, uh, I'm sorry, the, the three steps of uh, death meditation are uh, you will die. It's definite. It's not if, it's when. Uh, I'll never have enough time. No matter how much time I have, I'll never have enough time to practice the Dharma. 
My body is a fragile bubble of water. There are many things that can kill me and very few things that can help me stay alive. So when I die is uncertain. And on the day that I die, there is nothing except the Dharma that can help me in any way. Friends, family, money, and more will be of no value. Friends and family being there on your deathbed would be valuable to me. Actually, Buddhism says on the contrary. Because if you are surrounded by your loved ones and you are clinging to uh, having more time with them, that's going to ensure that you have a lower birth. Um, there, there is in fact a um, not related to the leisure and fortune, but it is a renunciation thing. Where uh, this is, of course, from Tibet, where young young people would go into the monastic system, and they say that your family will beg and plead and and cling at your hem and beg you not to leave. They want you so badly to stay. Don't go join the monastery, and in so doing, they will drag you to the lower realms. They will ensure that you don't make any spiritual progress in that life because you are turning your mind away from spiritual cultivation and turning it towards ego validation and self-cherishing. Desire, clinging, you know? So, um, in fact, being surrounded by your loved ones on your deathbed may actually uh, hurt you spiritually if you uh, don't have a very stable stage of meditation where you're not emotionally disturbed by that. The state of death, the, the moments of death are terrifying. From the subjective perspective, the, the universe is deconstructing from that person's point of view. And, it, and it's scary. The mind breaks down. And so the stability that we have here, uh, the ability to concentrate and feel relatively rational, the, the mind, when it's going through the last stages of death, uh, it loses that stability. And so it's not really a matter of how you hope it's going to go. You're going to fall back on your habits. and so. The idea here is that only your dharma practice is going to help you at the time of death. It's your meditative concentration, your wisdom, and your compassion. Those three things are going to be what gives you the ability to direct the consciousness at the time of death so that it goes up rather than down. So when you wake up in the morning, here's one, of, here's one possible meditation assignment. Um, when you wake up in the morning before you even get out of bed, just make a list of all the good things that are going, uh, all the things that are going well in your life, all the forms of leisure and fortune, and then realize, and then also think that those things aren't going to last, and then at some point, maybe today, it's not going, it's going to run out. You know, the karma for this life is going to run out. If you need um, more assistance with this, we have the eight worldly thoughts, um, which are also called the eight worldly dharmas. I don't like calling them the eight worldly dharmas because we're already using dharma to refer to like spiritual education and spiritual practices. And the word dharma has gajillions of different definitions and many of them are contradictory. And so in this case, it's more like uh, a form of truth as opposed to sort of more universal truth or the definition I gave earlier, which is the, the uh, instruction on how to evolve spiritually, how to go through the spiritual evolution process. Anyway, that's just my opinion. You'll hear eight worldly dharmas a lot. Don't get confused because they're not talking about Buddhist dharma. They're talking about the inverse of that, the eight worldly thoughts. These are just the various ways that things go wrong for us, uh, the vicissitudes of life. You know, things get, go up and they go down. 
And so the idea of the reason we contemplate the eight worldly thoughts is to get an even keel so that when something good happens, we don't get overly joyful and attached to it. And when something bad happens, we don't get overly morose and attached to that. So the eight worldly thoughts are getting something that you want, not getting something that you want. Feeling good and not feeling good. Being well-known, famous, well-liked, popular, and not being well-liked, being disliked or unknown. People saying nice things to you and people saying bad things to you, not nice things to you. So the cool thing about the eight worldly thoughts is that the good things, the so-called good things, the apparently good things of cyclic life are just as much part of the problem as the bad things because they bring up the same problems in us of, of self-cherishing, desire, attachment, aversion, hatred, you know? It gets us inspired to start thinking about what to give up, what things that we want to give up, practices, behaviors we want to put down, and things we want to pick up, right? This is, this is maybe one definition of omniscience. There's a lot of different ideas like, you know, some people say, do the Buddhas know the personal name of every fish at the bottom of the sea? Do they know, like, that fish is named Steve and that fish is named Jake or whatever, you know? Like, do the Buddhas, like, they can just, like, know everybody's innermost thoughts? Well, some people say that, uh, that omniscience means this, just simply knowing what things are going to help the situation and what things are not going to help the situation. Now, we don't have that wisdom because we are doing things to help ourselves that hurt other people, which is actually how we're creating the causes for us to get hurt in the future because of karma, which we'll talk about in just a second. But um, Buddhas get it, you know? They, know. they know how to help people without planting dirty white karma, which is um, an altruistic act with a selfish motivation, you know, which is actually not white karma at all. It's more selfish karma. So this is why we have to learn about and, and uh, study the four principles of karma. Karma means causality. And uh, causality is something that we all get, right? Like, we all got here today because we we're here because we got behind the car, the wheel of the car, the car was in proper mechanical condition because we keep it maintained at the mechanic and then we have the money from the job to buy the gasoline to put in the car and the car combusts the gasoline, that's what makes it go and that's how we got here, right? That's causality, that's linear mechanical causality. And uh, karma is, includes that, but it also has a much bigger understanding of causality, which is that the things that we say have repercussions, and most importantly, the things that we think have repercussions, which means our motivation and, in, and our intention behind what we say and behind what we do is the most important part. That's the active ingredient, is the intention. And so that's why we have to meditate, learn how to control the way our mind works, so that we are uh, doing things with the appropriate motivation. As I mentioned, dirty white karma, doing an altruistic act with a selfish motivation. We, You'll encounter this in the world. This is kind of like The Secret, that movie that was like, if you, want, if you just want stuff enough, mag magnetism, the power of law of attraction, I think they ca call it. And, uh, and you'll encounter a similar type of attitude in the Buddhist world sometimes, which is like, if you want money, be generous. And so then you start like giving money to homeless people, expecting that it's like, uh, like it's a... Uh, like it's a bank account or something, if you just like give enough money away, then like cha-ching, a million dollars is gonna pop into your bank account one day. And um, 
that's not that's not really useful because it reinforces a couple of things that I think are trouble troublesome, problematic, which is one, the the self-cherishing motivation. Like the the underlying cause is I want money. That's why I'm being generous. And that's dirty white karma. Um, another problem is that it reinforces a mechanistic linear mo model of karma, which I don't really think how karma is working. You'll encounter frequently the uh, metaphor of karma as planting seeds or maintaining a garden. And uh, that's an excellent metaphor. And let's go through the four laws of karma right now and then look at the metaphor of seeds uh, and, and tending a garden. Um, and then I'll explain why I think it's a little problematic and, and another way to think of it that maybe you'll find more helpful. So the four principles of karma. Actions are certain to produce similar results. Or in other words, karma is definite. Um, karma is definite and an action produces similar results. So uh, this means that if we do things that hurt others, then that's going to come back at us experiencing suffering. If we act in ways that are selfish, it'll come back to us in experience of lack, of not having enough. If we hurt other beings, it means we will come to live in an environment where we feel threatened and where we're, you know, where instead of having healthy crops, we instead have poisonous plants. And instead of having people helping us, we have dangerous animals and, or, or even more overtly living in a, a truly violent situation like a war zone. Um, the karma of lying is that you will come to experience people in your world being deceptive or misleading you, or that you will perceive them as misleading you, whether or not they actually are being deceptive. You will constantly have suspicion uh, that other people are deceiving you. So that's what we're talking about when we mean karma. The, the causes are similar. The effects are similar to the causes. And this isn't a whole class on how karma works. We're focused on renunciation, but there, we can go into this in a lot more detail. And we will in the future, in a future class. Um, the pr principle of karma number two, consequences are greater than their actions. Karma grows. Um, the typical Tibetan Buddhist uh, turn of phrase or axiom for this is that karma doubles every 24 hours. Again, I think this is not entirely helpful because karma doesn't have volume or something like that. It's not like karma gets bigger. But what they mean is that the intensity the intensity of the karma continues to, to magnify. So in terms of seeds, the first law is if you plant a, a pine nut, you're going to get a pine tree. If you plant an apple seed, you're going to get an apple tree. You can't plant a pine seed and expect to get an apple tree. You know, the, the results are similar to their causes. Karma grows. You start with a little seed and you end up with a whole big plant. You, you, can't, you don't start with the finished tree. The tree doesn't emerge fully formed. It starts with a little seed. The third law of karma is one, can, one cannot meet a consequence if he or she has not committed the action. If there is no cause, there can be no corresponding effect. If the seed is not planted, then the plant will never sprout and ripen and turn into a tree an apple tree or a pine tree or whatever kind of seed you planted. And conversely, once an action is committed, there is no way to prevent the consequence. If you, if you, number three is if you don't plant the seed, the result will never come. The th fourth is if you plant the seed, the result must come. 
So this is why we have to be very careful about our actions and especially our motivations because every little mental impulse is planting karmic seeds uh, which are going to ripen as karmic results which are greater than their seeds. So a little, uh, a little phrase of rudeness can come back out of impatience, you know, can come back as having our boss explode in our face or something like that, you know? Um, I prefer thinking of karma as momentum because uh, Buddhas don't experience time in a linear fashion. You know, karm, uh, samsara has no beginning, has no ending. We, we're in the middle of something that is infinite in both directions. And, so, and Buddhas somehow are beings that are able to step out of that and see the, the big picture, you know? It's why they are represented as having three eyes. One eye peers the past, one eye peers into the future, and one eye peers into the present. But that's a metaphor that helps us because we experience time linearly. Well, Buddhas don't experience time linearly. They experience all of time and all of space as one single phenomenon. So that means that karma isn't like planted in the past, ripening in the present, or it's gonna ripen in the future. That's our habitual overlay of how time works. So I think of karma, it must be more like momentum because every action that we, every action that we undertake is continuing our trajectory. And we can choose, we have subtle, we, we get to choose subtly how our trajectory is going through these millions of minor decisions that we make every day. And so we are trying to get up ahead of steam, you know? It's not like you can get enlightened just by like getting rid of all the bad karma. Or if you just like get enough good karma that you'll like flip over into Buddhism, right? If to, into being, to Buddhahood, I mean. There, Buddha, Buddhahood is, a, is about wisdom. It's about understanding what the mistake is and stopping the mistake. And then karma and all of the work that we're doing in our spiritual practice is just to build up the momentum, the head of steam that we can get to that precipice where we have that aha moment. And so that's why we have the, uh, the six perfections. I don't think we go into the six perfections in this class. I think we go into the six perfections in two more months. So you'll want to come back for that because that's like how to fix the problem, right? You want to come back for that class. Boy, they go on and on about suffering here, huh? Um, so the four principles of karma, we have to, to escape some sorrow, we must take up good action and drop bad action. And that's the goal of renunciation, to like get really, really, really clear on that fact. And if you need some more motivations, um, they have the six different realms. There are um, different types of beings. We live in the human realm. And so the six particular, each of the realms has a particular type of suffering. Um, the, in renunciation, they do want you to contemplate the lower births. Um, we're not going to go into a lot of detail on the lower births. We're just going to talk about the six sufferings of a human life. Um, the problem that life has no certainty. The problem that we always want more than we have. The problem that we, keep, that we have to die. And not only that we have to die, 
but that we die over and over and over again. And the problem that we have to go into a new life over and over again and go through the process of maturation and being a being stupid and having to learn how the world works all over again, which takes, I don't know, 20 or 30 years. That's a, that's a lot of wasted time, you know what I mean? So you want to try to make as much progress in the spiritual life in the hopes that next time maybe you'll have a better, in the, a favorable rebirth that is uh, where you can maybe mature a little bit more quickly. The problem that we go up and down in our fortunes in life over and over again, the vicissitudes of life, and the part problem that no one can come along with us, that we are existentially alone. So, the goal of renunciation is to uh, develop a real deep understanding that if I don't take control of my spiritual life and start practicing seriously, that I'm just going to stay in uh, a habitual reactive state that is going to basically continue forever. That uh, a human birth is very rare because it requires a great deal of good karma to have the leisure and fortune to practice spiritually. But um, that it's very easy to lose because we are basically, uh, have, we're at a turning point with the human birth, right? A human birth is the point, it's the, the, the three, the lower realms are the hell beings, ghosts, and animals. And then the human realm is kind of the cusp, we're like halfway between, and then the upper realms are the uh, demigods and the gods. And then the gods have more classes of their own. There are very, there's all kinds of different ways that you can exist because they're all subjective states of consciousness. You know, they're, uh, they are uh, a perception of oneself. So any perception of oneself that one can have, there's a, a universe for that being to inhabit and more or less manifest through a karma. So um, with the human birth, we have, the, the human birth is the only one where you can make real spiritual progress. Um, the, the hell beings and, uh, and, and ghosts are in a state where they are in so much pain, they don't have any leisure and fortune to practice. They're so aware of their suffering that they can't escape from it for even a moment. Um, animals are essentially ignorant and they don't have the capacity to learn complicated ideas or learn how to meditate or learn how to practice ethics. You can train an animal to behave a certain way, but the animal is not developing an intrinsic uh, motivation to not hurt other beings because of an understanding of how causes and effects work. Um, and then the higher realms, the demigods and the, and the gods, they essentially uh, have so much leisure and fortune that they don't experience any real suffering enough to turn their minds towards the Dharma. So the human realm is considered to be the right balance between leisure and fortune and suffering, where we have enough motivation to get in gear and we actually have enough time and energy to actually put these things into practice. And so we have a great opportunity, but also a, a, a potential of great peril because we have the possibility to essentially burn up our good karma, drain our trust fund, 
and then um, get ejected out of this life into the lower realms. So either you're strategically um, developing that momentum, planting those seeds of an upward spiral of uh, future spiritual development, or we're just like spending the cash as fast as we can, and then when we run out of cash, the only place to go is down. From the poem directly, there's no way to end without pure renunciation, this striving for pleasant results in the ocean of life. It's because of their hankering life as well that beings are fettered, so seek renunciation first. Leisure and fortune are hard to find. Life's not long. Think it constantly. Stop desire for this life. Think over and over how deeds and their fruits never fail and the cycle's suffering. Stop desire for the future. When you've meditated thus and feel not even a moment's wish for the good things of cyclic life, and when you begin to think both night and day of achieving freedom, you've found renunciation. So that's how we build the platform. That's how we build the foundation and the ground floor that we are going to construct our uh, spiritual mansion on top of. Uh, without a strong foundation in renunciation, you can try to build those uh, higher floors, but you can imagine what it would be like to move into the second floor or third floor of a house if you neglected to build the first floor. It's not, uh, it's not going to be a stable structure. It's not going to work very well, and it could very likely collapse and trap everybody inside. Okay, I think that's good for today.